So this week, my daughter participated in a mock trial at her school. It was a creative way for the students to learn about a variety of things that occur in a court case. It also allowed them to you know, practice preparation skills and research skills and stuff like that. And the mock trial that they out together was based on a real trial that actually occurred in Massachusetts sometime in the early 20th century. And what makes this trial especially interesting for the kids to work through that goes beyond just sort of the research and the preparation is that the two men who were convicted and then later executed for a crime of murder were largely convicted, has now been recognized for anti-immigrant racism. At the time of their conviction, uh, increasingly people became aware of this and it started to spread across the entire globe. And so in the, around like 1917, there were mass protests happening all around the world, including in places like France and Australia, over their conviction and its basis in racism. And as I worked with my daughter through some of her preparation, it was clear that uh, this is really what was going on, that there was this racial bias behind their conviction. As you read the narrative of the testimony that some of the key witnesses gave, um, it, it was clear that bias had warped their wit the stories of the witnesses and even some of the people who were working in uh, the government. Uh, it had warped their testimony as well. And, that, and so it was clear as we were working through this that these people had been called to take the stand, and then they had lied or entered into deception in, in some degree. And, and, um, and because of that, because of their lie, because of their deception, two men were executed. And for my daughter and for many of her classmates who, who went outside of just what the information they were given and read about this case, the innocence of the, these two men was, was very clear and there's also just this tension that they're feeling. This person lied because of their racism. And then these two men were executed because of it. And it's not the first or last time, probably, that this will happen. And these courtroom scenes like this highlight how dramatic a lie can be. It reveals how life-altering it can be when somebody chooses to bear false witness. Or when someone chooses to engage in deception or deny the truth. And in a courtroom where the truth is supposed to be so central to what is, is happening, where you're exploring and seeking the truth, a lie and deception seems especially egregious. But the courtroom, it's not the only place where a lie or, or deception can bring destruction. This week we heard a story that's more contemporary about a similar unfolding in a very different context. The Washington Post was forced to retract a story that it had published about Trump in the weeks following the election. They had published this story based on a single source account and that source had said that, that Trump had called this Georgia election official and that this source had quoted him as saying that he said find the fraud, wanted this person to find the fraud and that if she did she would be a national hero. Well, sometime after that a, an audio recording of the call was released and he did not say these things. 
The reporting misrepresented what he had said and exaggerated what he said. He had said, if she looked, she would find dishonesty or something to that sort. This may not seem like a huge deal because Trump was saying similar things in public, but journalism is an industry built on trust, and the Washington Post is an institution where its whole business model is built upon the foundation of of its readers being able to trust that they are doing accurate, truthful reporting. And so while it may not significantly change the way people think about Trump, what it does do for a number of readers is say, hmm, can I trust the Washington Post? Can I trust their storytelling, especially about people like Trump who they maybe don't like so much? Testifying to what is true is important in the courtroom. Telling the truth and making sure you get accurate quotes of people is is essential in journalism and other institutions. But it's also essential in our everyday human relationships. There's almost nothing more distressing in life than, than being in a relationship and discovering that that person that you're in a relationship with has lied to you. Especially if this is someone you're close to, someone you love, someone you trust. Discovering that they've even kept a secret from you which feels deceptive can similarly be deeply disturbing. If you discover, if you're a parent and you discover that a a child has lied to you, there's a shift that happens in your relationship with them. If you discover that your spouse has kept something secret from you, there can be a long road of rebuilding of trust that, that lies ahead. If you find out that your parents have not been telling you the whole truth as you get a little older about some family history event, this can undermine the relationship and the way you look back on years of relating to that maybe that person. If you discover a close friend lied to you about her plans on Friday night, maybe she told you she couldn't go out, she had to stay home, but then you discover she went out with other friends. Well, that lie can put an end to the friendship. Telling the truth is foundational to human relationships. It's essential for justice in the courtroom. It's kind of the basis upon which institutions hold on to their power, whether or not you can trust them. All three of these areas are important, but it's also important for the well-being of your soul. A lie divides what is true, what really happened to what you know on the inside, from the way you act and engage on the outside. When we lie, we have to to split this inner world where truth dwells off from the external world where we have to live a life consistent with the lie that we've constructed. Even with simple white lies, the impact on our soul can be enormous because we have to, to manage this divide between our own internal truth and this external facade which we've created with the lie. And managing this divide, even for a small lie, can be a heavy burden on the soul. Lying can lead to injustice in the courtroom. It can destroy institution. It can wreck relationships. And it causes a heavy burden on the soul. So it seems fair to wonder, why do we all do it? Why? Do we lie? 
Why do we deceive? Why do we deny what is true? Why do we feel so drawn to deny the truth and live in this false reality sometimes? Even when it so clearly and obviously causes pain to our soul, to relationships, and to the world around us. And in our passage, it's clear. People lie for self-protective reasons. We lie because we worry about what others will think of us or what others will do to us or what will happen to us if we tell the truth. And John is telling this story in John 18 in order to reveal that whatever horrible thing we fear may happen if we tell the truth, that we think the lie will protect us from, the consequences to our soul and to relationships, by t- for, if we tell a lie, are far worse. And John does this by providing a contrast between Jesus and a couple of people. First Peter and then later Pilate. He shows how each person relates to the truth. Peter denies the truth. He denies knowing Jesus because he's afraid. It's something we're all very familiar with. He's he's afraid what those people around him are going to think or do to him. And so he lies in order to protect himself. Pilate is cynical and skeptical about a person's ability to even know the truth because if he can't really figure it out, then that denies him the responsibility that is being placed at his feet to decide and to judge Jesus who stands before him. But Jesus' relationship with the truth is very simple. This comes out in the passage. He listens for the truth, And then he testifies to what is true. And in this way, Jesus is a clear model for us. Provides us with a framework for how you and I ought to live. In difficult moments, Jesus simply commits to listening for the truth and then bearing witness to what it is and speaks it clearly. This is perhaps most clear in his interaction with the high priest in verses 19 to 24, which I'll read again. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This is like a courtroom scene. Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world, not deceiving, not in secret, not in hiding. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? In this short exchange, it's clear that Jesus' speaking is rooted in testifying. He's asked a question. He discerns what is a true response. And then he testifies to it. He's not primarily thinking about how people are going to respond to him and letting that shape his answer. 
And this interchange then results in him getting hit in the face. And, and ultimately, because of his commitment to testifying to the truth, he ends up being crucified. So it's not without consequences, testifying to the truth, but still, this seems like the lesser toll than the toll exacted on the soul when we live in deception. So Jesus is this example for us. He's staying totally committed to the truth. He's listening for what is true, and then he's testifying to it. He says to them after being hit, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. And by this, he then implies that not only is Jesus listening for the truth and then testifying, but this is something you and I can do. This is something those people who are questioning him can do. We can all listen for the truth and then bear witness to it. And even after he answers the question and then gets, he's just saying like, maybe he's almost open to this idea. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I misremembered. If you hear something different because you can listen for the truth too, you testify to that. And I'll listen for the truth in how you respond to me. There is this underlying assumption for Jesus that you and I can listen and hear the truth. And then we can choose to bear witness to what we hear. And I wonder, can you do this? Do you know how to do this? If I, if I were to ask you a question right now, before you answer, could you first listen? Like if I said, think about this morning, when you woke up, or where you woke up, or who woke you up. Think about what you did next. Think about what you ate for breakfast, who you ate with, what you did after that. And you think about this. If I ask you the question, how well have you loved those closest to you this morning? Before you answer, could you listen for the truth? Some of us know how to do this. But hearing the truth is hard. Maybe it's hard because the truth is hard to hear. But it's also hard because it takes practice. This is not something we just do by default. Some of us are overly scrupulous. That means we have this overly active conscience. So like we can apply really harsh standards of self-condemnation. So when I ask that question, how well do you, did you love people this morning? Your over-scrupulous conscience may be very condemning to you. You may have all sorts of condemning thoughts that rush in, and, and your scruples can keep you from hearing the truth because you're just searching for ways to self-condemn. Others of us go in the opposite direction. Maybe you're overly self-defensive, and so you immediately start providing all sorts of excuses for yourself, and, and this blaming or defensiveness also obscures the truth and makes it hard to hear what is true. But if we practice listening, perhaps with the help of somebody else, 
we can grow as people who hear this voice of truth. We can get better at prayerfully sorting through our thoughts and discerning what is the truth here. And the more we practice this type of prayerful listening for the voice of truth, the faster we're able to do it. So that we don't have to pause for a minute and prayerfully reflect. We can immediately listen, hear, and respond with testimony to what is true. And this is what Jesus is doing in this interaction with the high priest. He's in this incredibly intense moment. The future of his well-being is on the line right here. So he's got all sorts of incentive to not listen, but to just react and try and control the situation and shape what people are thinking about him and what they're going to do to him. But he's not doing that. In this incredibly tense, anxious moment, he is able to listen for what is true. Not spin the narrative, not worry about what they think about what he's saying, but listen and testify. Listen and testify. And that's the model Jesus provides for us. That we can get to this place where our conversations with others and our conversation with the voice of truth can be so seamless that we can go in and listen and then we can testify in conversation and then go in and listen and then be in conversation with others. Peter provides a very different way of relating to the truth. He's not considering what is true. He's, he's considering what other people want to hear. He's clearly denying the testimony of truth even when it comes from someone else. In verses 26 and 27, one of Jesus or one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, "Didn't I see you with him in the garden?" Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment a rooster began to crow. So Peter's denying the truth, and, and the irony of this interaction is that there's somebody else who's not a follower of Jesus who is bearing witness to the truth about Peter that Peter then denies. His testimony is, I've seen you in the garden with Jesus. Peter denies what is true because he's afraid. And this exchange is even more grievous because this is basically Jesus' strategy. He lives his life as one who bears witness to the truth. And he wants his followers to follow his example of bearing witness to the truth. And when he goes to the cross, his plan for this continuing on is that they then would continue to bear witness to the truth. This, is, this strategy is clear in his interaction in verses 20-21. I've spoken openly to the world. Again, just bearing witness to the truth, not hiding, not deceiving, always taught in the synagogues or the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Ask them. They're going to bear witness to what I said when I was bearing witness to what is true. Jesus has testified to the truth and he believes that those who hear him and follow him will do the same. But Peter is afraid. He's afraid for his well-being. He's afraid of being looked down upon. So when his, he speaks, his words are not rooted in listening to the voice of truth outside. His words are rooted in worry and wondering about how people will respond to him. He knows it's going to cost him to tell the truth, so he simply 
denies it. But then, after the rooster crows, we see how much worse the damage is for Peter to his soul for lying. The damage of the lie is inflicted on his soul and it is crushing for him. He runs away. He hides. He's in deep despair. And he's ashamed because he denied the truth. And this lie nearly ruins his life. Thankfully, at the end of John's Gospel, we see Jesus come back and restore Peter. But it's clear that this deception, this lie, took a heavy on Peter's soul. We lie because we think it's easier, it's less costly, but the truth is it can be soul-destroying. And apart from Jesus' restoration of Peter, it would have been soul-destroying for him. It's always easier for us to just commit to live in the truth, to listen and to testify. Peter provides this sort of foil with Jesus Shows us the opposite way we can go when we go the way of denial and fear. But Pilate provides another example of the way that you and I can deny the truth. He provides this example of what it looks like to sort of like be a sophisticated person who denies the truth. He's not doing it necessarily out of just like fear and outright lie. His denial is rooted in skepticism, cynicism, and nuance. Listen to the interaction that Jesus and Pilate have in the verses following the the verses that Chris read for us. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. Jesus says it, So clearly, the reason he was born and came into this world is to testify, to listen and to testify, to listen for truth and to testify. Pilate hears this, truth, how can you know? How can you know? What is truth? Pilate's different than Peter. Peter clearly knows the truth and denies it out of self-protective impulses. Pilate is hiding. He's hiding behind his doubt. Doesn't want to take responsibility for what is before him. So he's denying that he can know. There's equivocation here shielding himself in the language of nuance, skepticism, and cynicism. What is truth? I mean, how can I know what truth is when there's so many different opinions and perspectives, and what does it mean to be a king? 
In this way, Pilate reflects what you and I often hear today. So many perspectives. There's no such thing as one truth. There's just opinions, angles, different personal backgrounds. But there's no one story. Everyone has their own story. And Pilate uses this to absolve himself from the responsibility of being in this place of judge and leader and ruler. But for Jesus, it is simple. You can hear the truth. You can listen for the truth. You can testify to what you hear, the truth. It doesn't mean you have to know everything, and it doesn't minimize the reality that people can have different perspectives and that both perspectives can be true, and you can learn something from listening to somebody who has a different perspective or a different personal history than you or a different cultural background. That doesn't go away. Each person can tell a true story. Jesus knows this, but he still is pressing this issue with Pilate. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. (laughs) This means listening to the voice of truth puts us in alignment with Jesus. We can be on the side of truth. We can slow down. We can listen. And then we can testify to it. Pilate's cynicism is just lazy. He just doesn't want to do the work of listening. This is important. Because Pilate's response is just as likely a temptation as Peter's response. The core takeaway from these interactions is simple. You and I can hear the voice of truth. Don't deny it out of fear, thinking that by lying it'll save you pain because it just gets worse. Don't abdicate responsibility out of doubt or cynicism. That's just lazy. There's consequences for that too. Do the work of prayerful listening. This voice of truth is available to you and it is available to me. We just have to learn how to listen and this takes practice and requires intentionality. And the more we practice it, the more it becomes second nature so we can do what Jesus can do. We can be in an incredibly tense situation with high life stakes for us and listen and testify. Even though we know it, it's going to cause us, there's gonna, it's going to be difficult for us. could cause us harm. This past week I was having a conversation and, uh, and I had an experience like this of listening and, and hearing this voice of truth. And I didn't necessarily respond the way Jesus did, the best possible way. I responded more like Pilate. I didn't say the exact words, what is truth, but within me I said something and, and I was kind of saying, I don't really know, who can really know what is happening here? It's kind of equivocating. But later, as I was preparing for this sermon, and I was trying to apply what I'm preaching about to my own life, I reflected back on this week, and I remembered that moment where I was having a conversation with somebody, and I said something, and I heard this voice say, is that really true? That's all it was. Just this very, very gentle voice asking, is that really true? 
It wasn't an outright lie. If I would have gone back, I maybe would have changed a matter of degrees or emphasis of the words that I spoke. But in that moment, as I heard this voice, is that really true? I needed to slow down and listen. I've been trying to do this more often. In the middle of a conversation, I'll say to a person, hold on a second. And I may even close my eyes and I'll try and listen for that voice. And this is easiest for me to do. Really, it's the only place I'm doing it is in places where there's a lot of relational trust and it doesn't look too weird for me to close my eyes for a second in the middle of a conversation. Or, or they'll extend me the latitude to just be patient with me while I listen. Do this with friends and family where I can. And I'm getting better at it, so it feels like it's something I'm doing a little bit more seamlessly and fluid. But, but sometimes... I miss it. It's hard. I don't want to slow down. I don't want to listen. I just want to keep going. And because I preached today, I became aware that I did that. You know, there's a way that it happened to me, and I, and I kind of would have not even remembered that it had happened to me, except for the fact that because I'm preaching this sermon, I did this exercise of reflecting back. And so this was another reminder to me of how important it is to just do this work of prayerful examination. Every day at the end of the day, or if you don't do it every day, just at least every once in a while, just stop and reflect and review and notice how are you doing at listening. And so we're going to take a moment to do that right now. Throughout Lent in the sermon series, we're ending our sermons with a question. We give you some space to do some prayerful, quiet reflection. If you're worshiping with somebody at home and you'd like to, you can be in conversation about this question or you can just sit in the quiet with this question. The question for today is, can you think of a time you heard the voice of truth and testified to it? Is there a time you denied it? And then what does this voice sound like? Or how do you notice or experience the voice of truth? So go ahead and sit for a couple of minutes with that question in prayerful reflection. <laughs> 